0: Let's stand and sing the doxology, and we'll give our friends come in in just a second. There's lots of seats up front, and there's a good number of seats over here on the left. Come on in. Still a lot up front. Still a lot over on the left. Still several up front. Still some on the left. I'm on the front, and on the left as well. Happy birthday, Lord. Thank you, Louie. Let us uh, pray again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise, Praise Him all creatures here I'm an academic for my day job, as uh, most of you know, and one of the reasons, I suppose, that I got into that line of work was somewhere along the way I realized the profound impact that words and ideas and conceptualization have upon individual human lives and the lives of communities. I'm increasingly convinced that that is true even though a lot of times we will talk about mere talk and there are there is indeed moments at which all we're doing is babbling on in mere talk and there's a great ab- abundance of that with 24-hour news cycles and all the things of that sort. But I want to I want to suggest to you that one of the tasks of the church is to take seriously the words and not words in a simply uh, shallow politically correct sense of words. But words and concepts and constructs, the ways we argue about things, the way we frame things, the way we talk about things, I want to suggest to you can have and does have a profound impact upon the way we see the world and the way we engage the world and the way we engage one another. What I want to do today is I want to lay out kind of four theological anchors, I'm calling them, for the kinds of discussion that we want to have in here uh, this term, and suggest to you that to, to, to push yourself, that when you began having conversations of, of social or political or cultural significance, to try to push yourself to consider how would my talking about this be potentially modified if I push myself to use these categories when I'm talking about it. These aren't, and I'm going to be so arrogant as to suggest these aren't simply my categories, but that they are biblical categories. They are preeminent, prominent, fundamentally important biblical categories that run throughout the whole of Scripture and are especially prominent in the New Testament that I want to suggest to you are of utmost importance when we talk about all sorts of issues, and especially, again, as we talk about questions about race or reconciliation or unity. Here's the first one, uh, the Kingdom of God. This is one that we talk a lot about at Otta Creek and I'm glad that we do. Uh, as Josh said this morning, again introducing some of this idea, you know, the, 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 the goal of Christianity is not to go to heaven. That's not the goal. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that the point of Christianity is to go to heaven when we die. Moreover, the picture that we assume of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22, the street of gold is not in heaven. The street of gold is in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven where God can be at home in our midst. We have fundamentally missed the point of the Christian gospel when we talk about going to heaven as the point. It's not the point. It's not the end of the story. Even if we do rest with God in the bosom of Abraham after death, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is resurrection of bodies, new heavens and new earth, all things being made right. The kingdom of God. Now one of the reasons that this is so important is that, as, as for those of you who would have read the chapter by uh, Richard Hughes last week, is that as he plays some of that out in the history of race relations, uh, when we have this sort of deep emphasis upon a, a disembodied spirit and the saving of souls going off to heaven when we die, it becomes very easy to say things like, Race relations is not, does not pertain to the gospel because the gospel is about the saving of souls. This is language that was very common in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, but when we realize that the gospel is about the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is about the breaking down of all hostility and that the kingdom of God is about reconciliation or as Paul will say in Corinthians, he says, what we have been entrusted with is a ministry of what? reconciliation. Our job, our ministry, fundamentally for Paul, is a ministry of reconciliation. And when we take the Christian gospel and somehow say it doesn't pertain to this issue of hostility, or worse, we take the gospel and we use it to facilitate yet more hostility, even though we may talk very spiritual language, and even though we may talk in Christian categories, we are not practicing the gospel because the gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. One of the great analogs of this, if you read much of civil rights literature, especially from the 1960s, is the language of the beloved community. The beloved community, I suggest to you, is this beautiful kind of analog for saying, what does it mean when the kingdom of God breaks into our midst? What does it look like when God's reign breaks into the middle of our social relations, and in the middle of our community. It's also, of course, important to realize that in the New Testament, what we have is this sort of now-but-not-yet eschatology. That the kingdom of God is here now, but not yet fully. And that, of course, creates the tension, the so-called tension between church and world that the church is is intended to be the community that we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God in and yet the world has not yet accepted fully this notion of the kingdom of God. There's much more to say about that but let me move on to the second one. So number one, kingdom of God. That God's peace has broken into the world. God's reconciling intent has broken into the world. God's reconciliation has broken into the world. Second. Uh, And again, any of you who have come to my classes very much, this is not going to surprise you either. The second one of the utmost importance in this conversation is the notion of the principalities and powers. Uh, The principalities and powers, the language of principalities, powers, thrones, dominion, authority, listen to this, is used in every single one of Paul's letters except Philemon. Every single one of them. He talks about principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, authority, over and over and over and over again. For, for, um, if we think about kind of a theology of the powers in Paul, it goes something like this. That the powers are created for good. That the powers, you might think of powers as kind of structures and systems of authority. They're structures and systems of things that, that lend things to human life that are necessary for human life. You think, for example, about any kind of ism or you think about um, structures and systems. If we're going to have human communal life, we need things like systems of economic exchange. We need things like uh, means of communication. We need things like human language. We need things like those who would be servants to a community and help order the affairs of a community. All of these things are created, especially we see this in Colossians, are created through Christ, by Christ, for good of humankind. The powers are created for good. But what happens repeatedly is that the powers overreach, and instead of serving humankind, they begin to oppress humankind. Because what it appears to happen is that the powers, the isms and the institutions and the structures, to the degree that they're given personality by Paul, they began to become hell-bent on their own survival and rather than serving humankind, they began to enslave or oppress humankind. So, a system of economic exchange that's intended for good, when it begins to overreach, you see things like 2008. You know, if you if you haven't read, for example, the what is it, the Long Short or the Big Short, Big Short, big short or, or seen the movie, I showed this movie to my one of my honors classes last semester. And after after they read the book and then watched the film, at the end of the film, I turned it off and I said, "What do y'all think?" and that these are smart students and they sat there dumbfounded and they said I don't, one of them said, I don't understand why everybody isn't talking about this. But if you want a great picture of the way there are these structures and powers at play that are bigger than any one person, that are bigger than any one player in which the the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. It's a great example. And it begins to have its own sort of power, its own sort of inertia, and its own sort of capacity to bring things and bring people (laughs) down. So I want to suggest to you um, that there are things like, for example, law and order. Law and order is not a bad thing. Paul will say law is a gift. Um, But as one New Testament scholar put it, law and order crucified Christ. Law and order is the principality and power, and law and, and all principalities and powers are created by God for good. But they begin to overreach. And in their overreaching, they oppress and they dominate and they do nasty things. Um, the powers in, even in their state of rebellion, are still used by God for good. We see this in Romans 13. Um, do you might remember who the Emperor was when Paul writes Romans 13, saying that these these powers are gods used by God? Nero. And Nero was a you know I can't say what I want to say. If you hadn't read much about Nero, he was a nasty dude, right? But Romans 13 asserts that even in their state of rebellion, God still uses the powers somehow for his purpose. It's not always clear how that works. Um, But they're used by God to the purpose that they check chaos rather than create chaos. And sometimes that's what the powers begin to do, is to create chaos. And finally, we might say they don't need then to be destroyed. The powers don't need to be destroyed, but redeemed. And or pointed back toward their true purpose of serving humankind. Some analogs for this, I would suggest, kind of in the civil rights discussion, are things like if you've if you, if you never read W.B. Du Bois' book, The Souls of Black Folk, is one of the classics in American literature, but he'll talk about the veil. You know, the, the veil is his, his language for talking about the way there's this sort of structure, there's this sort of reality that the white folks can't see, but the black folks can see it, and it's there and trying to get around or get beyond or get through the veil is very palpable, very real, and it's a structure that's there. It's there. Uh, or you might think about Jim Crow laws as a sort of great example of the overreaching of law and order. Or you might think about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And what Michelle Alexander has argued, and I think argued rather persuasively, is that what's hap- one of the things that's happened is that Jim Crow being broken down in American jurisprudence kind of began to be subverted and has come up in new, very covert, but nonetheless powerful and palpable ways in the criminal justice system. Now, Again, I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm asking you first to consider the possibility that these might be incredibly poignant and terribly important social practices. To consider in light of the biblical notion of the principalities and powers. Now, let me let me get let me get to one point I think that's really important in this conversation. In his book, um, that a friend just recently pointed me to, uh, Tana Hesse Coates' book, um, Between the World and Me. Yeah. He has this line where he says something like, "White folks are." overly caught up in individual justification he says I find I suspect that that is true now what I understand him to be meaning by that is that when we start talking about issues of race at least in my experience anecdotally purely anecdotally here but in my experience what happens with the white folks is that we want to go first to the issue of whether I am a racist And I want to suggest to you that the individual of your and my individual culpability might not be the most important conversation in the room. Now, let me back up a second. As I was reflecting on some of this stuff this morning, I thought I can use that to run too fast and not acknowledge my own culpability, though. Um... I'm going to take the chance on being really, really honest, because you all, some of you all set that for us the first week. I remember telling nigger jokes in high school. I'm sorry, Robert. Um... I remember times that I was quiet when I should not have been quiet. I remember um, times that I made judgments that were not my place to make. And I am culpable for those things. But I would also like to suggest that my individual culpability, while it must not be justified or passed over, is not probably the most important thing that needs to be considered in this sense. Um, When we see the things that are going on... um, When we come back to the Apostle Paul, again, when talking about the principalities and powers, says, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's these forces. (coughs) If I run to defend myself from individual culpability, when we continue to see the things that are going on around us, we're missing the point. It's that there's a a very real principality and power at play. And the question becomes, how do we bear witness and tell the truth about what seems to be happening and the power that seems to be going on and the power that seems to be at play in the world? Um, If you're on the email list, you saw the story I told about sitting at dinner Wednesday night with a African-American pastor from Houston, uh, lovely human being. He was an attorney, practicing attorney for like 17 years, I think he, he said. He finally gave in to the call to practice Christian ministry full-time. Been doing that for another 17, 18 years. We had a lovely dinner together, lovely time talking together, and I finally thought I can ask him this question. I said, so, so what's it like for you? Um, racial issues, racial questions in Houston and he was very gracious and generous in sharing openly and honestly, honestly with me, and he told, told me a bunch of stories and shared his experience. But I think the thing that just got my attention that really made me sit up, um, even though he had t- we had discussed things that were much more about violence and much more about really troubling things, is, is he said, uh, he said, I got two boys, one's younger, this is as my recollection, uh, one's early 30s, one's late 20s, so I recollect they were both professionals of some sort. And he said, uh, he said, every time they leave the house, I still tell them, don't speed, obey the speed laws, and if you get pulled over, make sure you be submissive and do everything they tell you to do. And I looked at him and I said, you still tell your boys that every time they leave the house? And he, he in a very non-dramatic way, said, yeah. Um, now we might say, some might say, "Well, that's perceived, perceived threat." Some might say it's real threat. Um, but what I know is that it's not my reality. Not my reality. So I want to suggest that, of course, the police aren't the enemy. Of course, blacks aren't the enemy. The question becomes, how can we as Christians, and, and, I, and let me further say that Republicans are not the enemy and Democrats are not the enemy, and the degree to which any of us in the church reduce the enemy to any fleshly party, we have, we have just taken what the church has to offer to the world that can provide a very creative, very fruitful space for social criticism, critique, and redemptive possibilities, and we've thrown it in the garbage can. We must be the church, and the church must respond to the great threats in human history as the church, not as partisans. And so I ask us, what does it mean for us as Christian people to have our lenses shaped so that we try as best we're able to call a spade a spade and to call things the way we see them? Which leads us to our fourth point. Fourth theological, no, third. Oh, I'm going too slow. (laughs) The third one, the church. The third third anchor, theological anchor, is the church. So there at the end of that second point, what I I was getting at is that our theological vision, a biblical theological vision, if we take it seriously, and if we take the church seriously as a socio-political entity, let me say that again. If we take the church seriously as a socio-political entity, now please do not hear me say that that means the church must be Republican or the church must be Democrat. That is not what I'm saying. I'll say it again. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the New Testament sees the church as its own real alternative politic in the world. It's real Politic. That's why Paul said if any are in Christ, they're neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or free, all are one in Christ. And he says if any is in Christ there is a new humanity. See Paul sees the church as the new humanity in the world in which all of the div- dividing elements of division and hostility are broken down in Christ in baptism. Listen to this from Ephesians 3. Even as much as we talked about the church growing up, I never remember hearing this until I was probably in my late 20s. Ephesians 3. He says, To make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to... Anybody know what the next phrase is? The rulers and authorities in heavenly places. See how these things come together? The role of the church is to show to the world the wisdom of God, to the competing powers that are in the world. This, he says, verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to suggest to you that if we, if we take these conversations in the biblical vision seriously, we can begin to see the church as the place that is seen to be the locus of God's work in the world. That doesn't mean that we don't have things we're going to try to figure out what to say about social policy. Of course we will. Um, But we must always begin asking, in what way are we, the church, being what God has called humankind to be? Let it begin with the church. Unfortunately, though, let us not be naive. If you look at the 1960s, sometimes the church and Christian institutions were brought dragging along by the federal government. Um, it's, it's of great distress to me that if you were to be in Nashville in the 1960s and you could go to some gatherings of Christians and, and you were to, uh, to, to go to, to a given lectureship that the whites would sit on the bottom floor and the blacks would sit in the balcony and after, after the invitation... That if people came forward to be baptized, there was one church set aside for the black baptisms and one church set aside for the white baptisms. And they were sound on baptism. But see, what, 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 the, what the New Testament keeps calling us to is the church is to be the ministry of reconciliation. Last point, number four, fourth anchor is um, suffering love. Truth-telling and courage as the kind of the character of the church that's essential in this. Um, let me string together three or four ifs and get to a then. How about that? If it's true that the powers in our fallen state are ultimately concerned with self-preservation and they have their way of preserving their power and preserving what they're up to, If the kingdom of God has a competing goal with its varied and beautiful traits and practices in which the will of God revealed in Jesus is ultimately ensconced in a city whose gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there in which there is no temple for God is the light in which that God shall wipe away every tear from every eye and all the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it." End quote. If it is this kingdom toward which we strive in the midst of this still fallen world, then we must recollect that this is the kingdom of the martyrs. It is the kingdom effected by a suffering God. If we are to be Christians in this work, we are called to be Christians in a way in which we speak the truth and we love all people we love right we love left we love police and we love the we love the hippies we love the military and we love the pacifists because God has revealed God's will in a suffering Messiah. And that, I suggest, is one of the most profound, the most hated, the most delightful, the most unexpected words about God that has been revealed in the midst of human history. God, when God is ultimately revealed as a God of suffering love, who speaks the truth, who does so with courage. And to speak the truth and to speak it with love and to speak it with courage in the midst of a still fallen world means it gets costly at times and means it's hard at times and means we also mess up a lot of times. <coughs> but We get up and we seek to keep on going and we get to keep on going and keep on going. So, the kingdom of God, uh, principalities and powers, the reality of the church, and suffering love, truth-telling, and courage, I encourage you to consider as indispensable theological biblical pillars in this conversation. I've asked Robert to spend a couple minutes saying, what did you hear me say? And then we'll take what time is left for Q&A.
1: Well, basically. I heard something I didn't hear growing up. Um, talking about the kingdom of God, uh, looking at, at the, the church as being its <coughs> own individual politic. Um, you know, growing up where I grew up at, it's, it's either Republican and going to heaven was Democrat and going straight to hell, and I've actually heard preachers get up in the pulpit and say stuff like that. How can you be Christian and be a Democrat? Um, I have um, I've heard people that are that are so pro military that they forget everybody else. Some are so pro law enforcement that they forget everybody else, and some of us uh, are so pro black that we forget everybody else and some of us are just selfish that we forget everybody else but there is something that that, uh, I learned um, a few years ago that I have tried to incorporate in my my everyday life if any of you follow me on Facebook you'll you'll see this hashtag that I use and it's hashtag love people fight Satan growing up I, I heard a lot of bickering back and forth between so called Christians so-called Christian leaders, uh, both black and white, uh, about what what was right and what was wrong, and it was we were always fighting each other to the point that we forgot about what we were supposed to be doing in life. We forgot about what we were supposed to be showing the world. And I got so sick and tired of of us fighting each other that I was like, "Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this whole love people, fight Satan thing." And Sounds easy to do, but it's not. Uh, It's it's hard when you listen to people who who, uh, really do not like you because of the way you think, the way you look, but you still gotta love them anyway. Um, There was a a young lady that I was in conversation with one day and her (coughs) conversation to me, a black man, was I wish President Obama would be assassinated because he's a Muslim this was a Christian saying this so how do you think my brain processed that somebody who disagreed who who, who, didn't see, who she didn't see eye to eye with whether it be across race or religion or whatever but a Christian said this to my face This is the kind of example that we're setting before, non-Christians. I have had some of the most encouraging things said to me in my life from atheists and Muslims. There have been times where they were more encouraging than Christians. And that reflects on all of us in every building across The world today, all of us who consider ourselves to be Christians, it reflects on every last one of us that atheists who claim that they don't even believe in God and Muslims who do not believe in supposed to be our Lord and Savior but yet they treat people better than we do. So when I hear all of the when I read the comments on Facebook, when I hear the, the talk, whether it's said to me or I'm, I'm just walking past and I hear this, it's like what kind of example are we set for the world? Let's remember the, the words that our brother said this morning going forwards, Because we got to do a better job, all of us, black, white, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Matter of fact, we shouldn't, even, we shouldn't even be focused on that right there, we should be focused on what would Jesus want us to do? How does Jesus view the way we're talking to our fellow human beings? What kind of example are we setting? The reason why I say love people fight Satan is when you focus on the individual and trying to learn from that individual how he or she thinks Satan wants us to be divided so if we're trying to get to know each other He's gonna fight against that. So in the process of you trying to get to know somebody, you're fighting against Satan, because he don't want unity. My challenge to each and everyone in here, starting today, I challenge you to do this right here. Tiffany and I started this a while back, and uh, it gets uneasy, but I'm telling you, it's very beneficial. I challenge each and every one of you to invite somebody who's different from you, whether it be, if it's a man, invite a a female out to coffee or something. If it's a woman, invite a male out to coffee. If you're black, invite somebody white. If you're white, invite somebody black. All of us in here are supposed to be Christians. Sit down with a Muslim. Some of us may be be anti-LGBTQ, sit down with the LGBTQ have a conversation with them, have dinner with them, have a cup of coffee with them, sit down and listen to their story. Notice I said listen to their story. It's very challenging, very challenging. I did something not too long ago where there was a a young lady that I went to school with and I had no idea that she was part of the LGBT community but I sat down well, we talked via Facebook Messenger, but anyway, just just listening to her story, I never would have known. Just hearing her perspective changed something in my mind to help me to love people just a little bit more. Over the next few weeks, I challenge each and every one of you to do that it to change your life. Watch the Spirit of God work in you.
0: Thank you, brother. Let's open it up for a bit of... Uh comments, question, answer.
2: So uh, I spent a little time, I know they won't mind me calling them. I spent a little time talking to uh, Preston Schiff, Brian Mansfield, and Jerry Blue Collins online, on Facebook messages, talking about nothing, basically. Um, Talking about nothing, talking about basketball, I'm a filmmaker, so they watch some of my stuff. And part of the reason uh, that I do this is, I said if I was going to get involved in another church, I was going to get involved in a church and actually try to be in a real authentic kind of way with the people there. The majority of the people here just happen to be white, which is, which is different than the cultural experience that I grew up with. Uh, you know, Brother Hunter was a very active in the church that I grew up at. So one of the things that I've had, and I, and I appreciate your courage, and once again, I thank God for wandering into Otter Creek trying to prove a point. Ali, um, that you would say that you said those jokes. Because when I talk to most white people, and I get a lot, even here in Otter Creek, it's almost as if the n-word never existed. It's almost as if no one in your family's used it, you've never told a racist joke, you don't believe anything. I'm gonna be honest with you, if we really, really, really wanna do the last thing you talked about, is operate in truth and true love, we've gotta come and be very, very culpable to talk about our own issues with race. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I'm so open-minded and I'm willing to talk about some of the issues that I've had with white people, (coughs) even to talk about the issues that we've had in our own body with Marshall Keeble and some of these other people because if this is a Jesus thing it's got to operate in Christian love so let me let me just offer this as a and this may be a silly example my name is William Jenkins uh, I'm friends with a lot of you all on Facebook you are free to add me so we can talk about absolutely nothing because part of the issue that we have to do is we have to operate and honestly get to know each other outside of coming here on Sunday, That's right. we have to yeah. try to develop some sort of authentic <coughs> or relationship. And Lee, saying what you said, I feel 10 times more comfortable with you now mm-hmm. because you've admitted <laughs> that you have used the N word. Mm-hmm. And so and I appreciate it because I know that a lot of times white people tend to get more uncomfortable with black people saying the N word than y'all do with each other. So the next time we talk about the N-word, I'm going to use it. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm only going to be talking to to Rodgers.
0: Thank you, William. (laughs) Somebody else? Uh,
3: I think I heard you correctly. in interpreting principalities and powers that I didn't realize occurred in all of Paul's life, but
0: one. That's at least according to... G.B. Cared, New Testament oh, okay. scholar. I thought, yeah.
3: I thought you had research.
0: Yeah. Well, I've read G.B. Cared. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: but that's interesting. I'd always uh, thought that he was referring to these spiritual principalities and powers, which I had trouble understanding what those were. Did I hear you say that you felt he was referring to political? Structures, economic structures that were in existence in his time. Did I, is that your interpretation? Yes. Of what
0: he's yeah. To? There, there are at least two places where he explicitly uses language of principalities and powers to refer to contemporary uh, political entities. Namely, when he's talking about the crucifixion of Christ, and th- that the powers crucifying Christ, which would of course be an allusion to the Roman Empire, and. The Jewish religious authorities that were involved in that process, um, but yes, and, and and that's not to deny that there's a spiritual reality to them. So, for example, he'll talk about the seven angels of the churches in Asia, um, and, and so and it's not to say that a principality in power means bad, right? Because that was the first point. They're created for good. Structure is created for good. Um, but yes, that that that. it it seems to me helpful if we'll start thinking about like going back to the 2008 financial crisis, you know, the the bit of reading and studying I've done about that is a classic example of there is something going on here that's more than the sum of the parts and even the smartest people on Wall Street didn't know what was barreling down the pike at them. And it was because of systemic greed, it was because of all sorts of really bad decisions that had been made, uh, it was because of the fallenness of humankind and then all of a sudden, whack, And nobody could stop it. And so I think that this notion that there are spiritual realities in the world, there are systems and structures and powers, seems to be a profound insight by the New Testament that can be used for really interesting sociological observation. And it allows us to stay away from partisanship, sectarian partisanship, which I think is the way Paul tries to use it, especially as I said in Ephesians 6. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is these fallen powers that are pressing down on us. You want to come back or a follow-up question? No, it
3: just, uh, it seems to me that he can still be referring, and I have trouble with this other world concept anyway. I have trouble with, I've always thought that he was referring in his world view to these spiritual powers that existed in this other world and did not see it referring to the structures and and the political structure economic structures that existed in the world and except as perhaps these spiritual powers lying back there behind them was influencing them
0: uh and that uh, is a, that's a very common interpretation of them yeah okay
3: that's that's
0: all right next
4: yeah um
0: and then threads after that
4: Lee and I go back a long ways. I went to Lipscomb with uh, George Goldman and and Lee. uh, So I chose the military chaplaincy route. And uh, basically, most of my... Church of Christ. And there's a little boy named Maurice from the basically what I said to him, I said, I promise, I, I, I didn't imagine racism. I just couldn't plan a racism and, 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 and you know, kingdom, kingdom of God. It just, just was beyond me. So I said to him, I said, I promise you, I said in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and i watched her whole body go underneath the water. He said, you don't get it, people. I started thinking for a minute and I said to him, Oh, oh! You're talking about Maurice being in a pool with me? He said precisely. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I said, um, "With your spirit, this church is going to be closed in ten years." Philip Boyd and I, who you probably remember, we went down there. And those churches the up, and they die. But the gates of hell never prevail. against the church precisely because of what you're saying. It's its own um, politicized structure. It's not America. We are the kingdom. Despite whatever happens to America, we will survive because of that in the, in the unity. races in peoples and places, you know, where they live, and it's, uh, I appreciate you. the, um, the, the power, power of the, uh, uh, um, words you get us more well, well put. Thank,
0: thank, you. thank you. Fred, last word?
4: Maybe just to pick up on that, this would be real brief, uh, at least for me personally, said about the church not being about flesh and blood or partisans, I just want to echo a hearty amen to that.
0: May the God of peace give us grace to bear witness to the peace of God this week. Amen. Thank you all.